everyone, and you're tuned into The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm Alexandra Fernandez. Today in our virtual studio, I have with me Sam Azine of Queen's University. Sam is a recent prize winner of the Inquiry at Queen's program. Hello, Sam. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, so before we start talking about your research, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and your studies at Queen's University? Yeah, sure. Originally from Toronto, uh, North York, uh, I, it's my second year here at Queen's. Um, I'm studying biology and mathematics, which is a, a pretty fun program in uh, my opinion. It's uh, administered jointly by both departments of biology and mathematics. Um, so it's a fun experience being part of both departments. And uh, yeah. Awesome. Um, so how did you get to know about and get involved with the inquiry at Queen's program? And what's that process look like for those people who may not be aware? Yeah, so um, I actually, uh, after I completed the research with the, um, my fellow authors, uh, I was looking into different conferences uh, where I can uh, present my research um, and just Google searches really just uh, the first thing that came up for Queens was um, the inquiry at Queens uh, undergraduate research conference. And uh, yeah, it was really just uh, a Google search, but uh, it, it was quite easy to get involved. Um, uh, the main uh, barrier of entry was just uh, handing in a proposal, uh, an abstract of uh, your research. And uh, after that, things are just really smooth. Um, the team does a really good job at, uh, at keeping things really smooth. And uh, it was a very good experience. That's All awesome to hear. So you will be presenting your research paper at the conference and your research paper is titled Racial, Ethnic and Socioeconomic Disparities in Diagnosis, Treatment and Survival of Patients with Breast Cancer. So can you tell us a little bit about this research, what it kind of led you to learn and perhaps also um, what made you interested in choosing this specific topic for your paper? Yeah, so um, so the interest really lied, uh, say within the past year, um, you know, seeing the killing of George Floyd and the, um, uh, the different uh, uh, inequities in society that were presented in the, in the media uh, is what inspired me to get involved in, uh, in such research. Um, uh, as for what the research entails, it's, um, uh, we, we, we are looking at how race, interest status, and socioeconomic status uh, interact to influence uh, breast cancer care outcomes. And uh, uh, for outcomes, we uh, assessed uh, disparities in treatment access, uh, access to care, and uh, overall surviving uh, breast cancer. Yeah, so we found that, um, I just, I just want to um, say, first of all, this is a population analysis in the United States. Um, so all the data collected was, uh, was from patients in the United States. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, we found that... Um, uh, First, we assessed three different racial cohorts, which was uh, Hispanic, uh, African-American, and white. Mm -hmm. patients. And we found that um, uh, African-American and Hispanic patients uh, uh, showed disparities in access to treatment. Uh, specifically, we assessed uh, 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 disease presentation, first of all, which was uh, um, the fact that African-American and Hispanic patients often uh, presented with stage two or three cancer uh, as compared to stage one cancer more often than white patients. And that was one note of disparities that we uh, uh, found. Mm -hmm. um, we also found that uh, 
there are disparities in uh, access to care. And so for access to care, we measured um, surgery versus no surgery. So patients that undergo surgery and patients that don't undergo surgery when they have breast cancer. And we found associations that point to um, African-Americans and Hispanic patients having lower access to surgeries. So, so these patients are really um, uh, suffering a loss here that, uh, that is quite evident in uh, uh, the data. And even when speaking to uh, surgeons in the healthcare field, um, uh, they, can, they can vouch for this as well. Um, and then we also uh, measured survival of patients uh, mm -hmm. of racial cohorts. So we also found that Hispanic the patients were more likely uh, than uh, white patients to not survive uh, cancer outcomes. And uh, the real point of our study uh, was to find how these uh, racial uh, disparities are affected by insurance status and socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. So we found that uh, patients who are Black and Hispanic and are of the lower socioeconomic status and uninsured have much greater disparities than white patients who are uninsured and have lower socioeconomic status. So the disparities in um, uh, the ethnic disparities in Breast cancer outcomes were previously established in uh, the scientific literature, but there was, there was not much evidence to point towards how uh, race, socioeconomic status, and insurance status affect uh, the outcomes. Mm. And we found that there's a greater difference in disparities when you, when you uh, take into account the socioeconomic status and insurance status. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so for example, uh, black patients with lower socioeconomic status and lower in, um, no insurance status uh, present and have lower access to treatments and overall lower survival outcomes than white patients with the, with the same socioeconomic status and, and insurance status. Interesting. What were some of the rewards as well as the challenges and obstacles that you kind of faced conducting this research? Like the real challenge here is just uh, facing the truth here because uh, you know, I had the opportunity to speak to a, a couple of surgeons, uh, not only in the Canadian healthcare system, but also in the U.S. And that's where our, our study uh, uh, really relates to in the U.S. And um, speaking to those surgeons, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite saddening to hear um, the disparities that these surgeons actually experience uh, in, the, in, in the healthcare field um, physically. And uh, just to see uh, that data uh, and our research uh, confirm this with, uh, with what these surgeons are saying is, uh, is quite saddening. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. As far as uh, uh, other challenges, um, of course, there's, there was many challenges that, uh, that arose. Uh, <laughs> Definitely, yeah. You know, problems in our studio and statistics to to making sure the journal that we're submitting to is uh, we're meeting the requirements of the journal. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine the first one that you talked about in terms of like a very like emotionally and like physically, um, like mentally tolling challenge, you know, just accepting the reality of like the situation that unfortunately race is a factor when it comes to access to care and like treatment and all that stuff. When in reality, like it really just shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, just 
dealing with the data alone was uh, is uh, uh, quite sounding itself, but also speaking to you know surgeons that uh, experienced this was was the kind of cherry on top of uh, mm -hmm. how much effect this uh, these disparities have. Mm -hmm. For sure, and um, you know through this um, through this whole experience and stuff um, through either your research or just your time um, as a student at Queen's University, what do you sort of hope to gain from this program, this research, and also how would you like to you know, progress with your career in regards to this whole experience. Yeah. Um, so as far as experience, it was, uh, it was a great experience being part of uh, the conference. Uh, just being able to present uh, your work in front of many people was, was awesome. And being able to communicate uh, uh, things that you worked hard on was, uh, was a great feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, as, uh, uh, implementing it uh, uh, to my everyday life and uh, how far this research goes. Um, uh, I'm in biology and mathematics, so th there's a lot of uh, overlap of what uh, we did in the research and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm doing at school. And uh, it's great to relate these two things, especially uh, in the classroom. Definitely. Yeah, that sounds like a really good experience. And it's so great that you got to you know, that you were one of the winners and you got to like to um, present this, um, especially in such a relevant time as well, because it's such a thing that's talked about. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything else that you would like to add before we end off? Uh, sure. So, I mean, the purpose of our study was really to uh, find a problem here, to outline a, a problem that exists uh, uh, within our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. the, uh, what, what really wasn't the purpose was providing solutions uh, to the problem because that's what we ultimately want to do, right? We want to uh, make sure that everyone has the same access to care, same treatment outcomes uh, uh, without regards to race or, or, or ethnic backgrounds or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, uh, the, the authors that I've worked with um, have, uh, have some ideas of, of how we can uh, uh, try to fix this uh, problem. Uh, obviously, there's, there's many factors involved. It's a, it's a very complex problem. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, from what I've been hearing uh, uh, from uh, the authors and the surgeons, there's basically uh, three aspects of... Uh, uh, challenges that uh, we need to face to fix these disparities. Um, first, first of which was uh, at the patient level. So providing patients with uh, uh, literacy, so they know that uh, they follow up appointments and, and uh, make sure they go to their uh, appointments on time and, and get the treatment that they need. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the provider level, which means uh, uh, the actual healthcare workers in the hospitals. So, uh, trying to bridge the gap between these disparities would mean that we need to enforce or ensure that there's diversity in the workforce. And uh, it's well established in the scientific literature that uh, diversity in the healthcare workforce uh, can lead to better outcomes to, in regards to uh, patients that are of different race. Mm -hmm. um, 
just for an example, there's the 13% of the population in the United States is black, but only 2% of oncologists are black. Wow. So, yeah. So there's a big difference between uh, uh, the workforce and actual uh, representation of the population. Um, and of course, this has a big effect on uh, outcomes. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, the national policy uh, is very important to ensure that uh, policy accounts for these inequities. Um, so just an example that uh, we actually highlighted in our research. Uh, so the age recommendation for screening mammography uh, by the U.S. Preventative Task Force is actually 50 years old. Um, so screening mammography is just uh, a screening of breast cancer. Um, and they set the limit as 50 years old uh, as to when you can start screening uh, for breast cancer. Okay. But um, individuals from uh, African-American descent uh, are known to have uh, earlier onset of uh, breast cancer around the age of 40 than, than uh, their white counterparts. Obviously, this, this policy... Uh, negatively affects uh, black people and uh, this is just one example mm-hmm. and uh, uh, to be um, some sort of policy reform to account for uh, these differences yeah yeah that's really crazy because like I do hear about you know these types of things and like the discre- like the disparities that do exist discrepancies and like the unfairness essentially that exists in these types of worlds um, but I've never really like seen or like heard data about it and that's crazy like even like this policy thing about people you know like the age that they recommend is 50 but it's earlier onset but even though that's known you still don't do anything about it it also highlights that this is like a very complex problem and uh there needs to be a lot of people uh uh, pushing to a solution it can't just be one person Mm -hmm. there needs to be a a holistic understanding of, of this problem and uh people pushing to, to try to fix it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for joining me today to discuss your paper, Racial, Ethnic, and Socioeconomic Disparities in Diagnosis, Treatment, and Survival of Patients with Breast Cancer. It was a really insightful conversation, definitely learned a lot. I hope that, um, you know, a lot of people here were able to learn about what you were talking about, because um, it's such an important topic, and hopefully, um, can definitely spark a conversation about something very significant and something that definitely requires attention and change. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. We're back and you're listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. We have some news updates for you folks today. The second annual Tampon Tuesday donation drive collected over 120,000 menstrual hygiene products during the United Way's two-week donation drive. Community members were encouraged to donate pads, tampons, liners, and other menstrual hygiene products to help fill a need in the Kingston, Frontenac, Lennox, and Addington area. During this year's drive, from March 2nd until March 16, 2021, 128,957 pieces were collected through product and financial donations, according to a release from United Way of KFL&A dated Tuesday, March 30th. 
Over 80,000 products were donated and the financial donations totaled more than $9,000. Those funds were used to purchase more products, the United Way said in the release. The 2020 Tampon Tuesday Drive saw 45,000 hygiene products were donated and distributed to agencies and individuals in need in the community. Thank you to everyone who dropped off donations, ran workplace or neighborhood donation drives, ordered online, and gave monetary donations, said Bhavana Varma, President and CEO of United Way KFLNA. And a special thanks to all the partners who made the drive possible. Our community stepped up once again and showed their local love. Thank you. The donation drive was made possible through partnership with Bell Media, National Tampon Tuesday Partner, local labor partners, Shoppers Drug Mart, and the Egg Farmers of Ontario. The United Way offers a special thanks to all Kingston Shoppers Drug Mart stores, Secura Financial, and Shermare Spa locations for acting as drop-off locations. Products have now been counted and sorted, and the United Way said that they will be distributed in the coming weeks to various agencies in the community, including the Boys and Girls Club, Dawn House, Elizabeth Fry Society of Kingston, Girls Inc., HIV AIDS Regional Services Mobile Services, the Integrated Care Hub, Home Base Housing, Rise 149, In From the Cold, KCHC Pathways to Education, KHSC Detox, Kingston Interval House, Kingston Youth Shelter, L&A Interval House, Lunch by George, Maltby Center, Martha's Table, Partners in Mission Food Bank, Resolve Counseling Centers, Rural Frontenac Community Services, Southern Frontenac Food Bank, Street Health, and the St. Vincent de Paul Society. This story is by Jessica Foley, the Kingstonist for the Local Journalism Initiative. Food banks across Canada, the United States, and Australia are taking part in Give 30, a unique grassroots volunteer-run initiative combating hunger during Ramadan. Give 30 was founded in 2012 to bring attention to hunger in our communities and encourage people of all backgrounds to support food banks during the month of Ramadan through give30.org, according to a joint release from Give 30 and the Partners in Mission Food Bank. The initiative now supports 19 major food banks and anti-poverty organizations across Canada, the United States, and Australia, which together serve hundreds of thousands of people. The campaign locally, organized through the Kingston Islamic Society, supports the Partners in Mission Food Bank annually. Last year, the challenge of lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic resulted in an early campaign launch to ease the unexpected and increased need brought to local food banks. Through generous donations from community members who came together to help neighbours in need during this challenging time, Give 30 Kingston raised a grand total of $16,000 and $231 for Partners in Mission Food Bank. This total far exceeds anything that has been raised in past Give 30 campaigns in Kingston, according to campaign organizers. Through this and other campaigns, Dan Irwin, director of Partners in Mission Food Bank, was confident the food bank would be able to meet the needs of the community for 2020. As a Give 30 founder, Ziad Mia states in his national message, the virus has shown us that we are one human family, inextricably connected, interdependent, and in this together. This is the eight year for Give 30 Kingston and their second campaign during the COVID-19 pandemic. This past year, more than ever, has emphasized that there are those who are struggling in our neighborhoods, said Mona Rahman, co-chair of the Give 30 Team Kingston. Hunger is not an over-there problem. It's a problem everywhere, even in Kingston. Ramadan is about giving, building community, and understanding the challenges of hunger that others face, says Imam Abdul Rashid, Michael Taylor, co-chair of the Give 30 Team Kingston. That is why it works so well at motivating people to give. 
Everyone can participate in the spirit of Ramadan, Taylor emphasized. Give 30 is not about any one group or faith. It's about uniting in common humanity. Hunger and poverty know no race, religion, ethnicity, creed, gender, or age, and that is why it is important for everyone to join Give 30. This year, members of the Kingston Muslim Youth are organizing an inter-school competition encouraging secondary schools to raise funds for Partners in Mission Food Bank via Give30, according to the release. You can stay updated through their account at Kingston underscore Muslim underscore youth. Other groups and businesses are encouraged to get creative and join the Give30 campaign to help Partners in Mission Food Bank fight hunger in Kingston. The story is by Jessica Foley of the Kingstonists for the Local Journalism Initiative. To mark Dig Safe Month, Utilities Kingston reminds residents who might be planning to dig anywhere on their property to contact Ontario One Call at least a week before you dig. It's the law. Karen Santucci of Utilities Kingston says that people staying home due to COVID-19 are pursuing more outdoor improvement projects and this comes with increased risk. It's as important as ever for people to remain vigilant and exercise caution when digging or excavating. She cautions that some pipes and lines are just below the surface and that now more than ever, we need to put safety first. Open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Ontario One Call is a free service that shows you where municipal gas lines, water and sewer mains, and electrical or fiber optic lines are located on your property. You can call 1-800-400-2255 or go to www.ontariooncall.ca to make your locate request. Ontario One Call will need the address where the digging will take place, including the nearest intersection, a description of the work being done, and your phone number and email address. Severed underground lines could cause explosions, electrocution, flooding, and or a loss of essential services, and you could be liable for restoration costs and potential legal action. The Ontario Regional Common Ground Alliance, in conjunction with the Canadian Common Ground Alliance, have designated April as Dig Safe Month. This month is dedicated to raising awareness of safe digging practices across Canada to improve safety and reduce damages to underground infrastructure. Queen's University researchers from the Beattie Water Research Centre are collaborating with universities and utility companies across Ontario to launch the Wastewater Surveillance Initiative. The project, which is coordinated and funded by the Ontario Ministry of the Environment, Conservation and Parks, will determine how wastewater surveillance for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, can be used in combination with clinical data to help proactively inform public health decision-making and protect our communities. Through the collaborative efforts of scientists, engineers, and epidemiologists, wastewater surveillance of COVID-19 RNA has rapidly evolved. The SARS-CoV-2 virus has been found in stool from people who are symptomatic, presymptomatic, and asymptomatic, and traces of the SARS-CoV-2 virus can be found in wastewater. By monitoring sewage samples, it may be possible to identify early presence of COVID-19 in a community before increases in clinical cases are detected, to optimize allocation of testing resources, and to identify trends in transmission for better predictive models for this as well as future outbreaks. There has been a real all-hands-on-deck call across Queen's University with the COVID-19 pandemic, says Stephen Brown, Associate Professor with the Department of Chemistry and School of Environmental Studies and Co-Director of the Queen's WSI program. This wastewater surveillance initiative has provided an opportunity for wastewater researchers and the BWRC to contribute to the community response. 
the BWRC team in partnership with Utilities Kingston and in coordination with Kingston Frontenac Lennox and Addington Public Health have started sampling sewage at the inlet to wastewater treatment facilities in Kingston. Samples are then transported to the BWRC at Queen's University where they are analyzed for the SARS-CoV-2 RNA using the same reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction technology that is the gold standard for clinical testing. Additional wastewater treatment facilities and other sites in the region will be added as the project proceeds. Sarah Jane Payne, who is Assistant Professor in Civil Engineering and Co-Director of the WSI at Queen's, states that the COVID-19 challenge has brought new emphasis on wastewater-based epidemiology. This initiative will provide Queen's University with an opportunity to establish a foothold in this important, the emerging research area and premise to meet future challenges. Utilities Kingston started collecting samples for SARS-CoV-2 analysis starting June 2020, and those samples were stored frozen by the BWRC group in anticipation of later analysis capacity being available. Now that the group has joined the WSI and established the methods for detection and sewage, analysis of archived samples has commenced. The purpose is to determine the correlation between sewage monitoring results and the known past COVID-19 case history to help understand the expected relationship going forward. Results will be communicated through KFL and Day Public Health shortly. Samples are collected at the start of the wastewater treatment process at both the Ravensview and Cataraqui Bay wastewater treatment plants, contributing to a shared goal of protecting public health from COVID-19, says Jim Keach, president and CEO of Utilities Kingston, who added, We are pleased to work with Queen's University to analyze these samples and develop a baseline for our community. The Ministry of the Environment, Conservation and Parks is investing over $12 million into the COVID-19 Wastewater Surveillance Initiative to test wastewater samples taken from communities across the province. The Ministry is partnering with academic and research institutions in Ontario and in cooperation with various public health units and municipalities to create an integrated initiative that expands wastewater sampling and analysis province-wide. Queen's has received $586,000 to help with this project. That's all I have for you folks today. Thank you so much for tuning in to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm Alexandra Fernandez, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Here's your weekly traffic report for the week of April 5th to April 11th, brought to you by CFRC in the city of Kingston. Road closures are in place this week on Garrett Street near Division closed until June 30th for construction staging. Local traffic may access Garrett Street from University Avenue. Market Street, Ontario to King closed April 1st to December 31st to accommodate the Love Kingston Marketplace. Grenadier Drive at Winfield Crescent expect delays while construction takes place around the Kingston East Community Centre site. Flag people will be on site to direct traffic. Highway 15, Washburn Road and Sunbury Road expect single lane reductions until November to accommodate the Rideau Canal Blackwater Culvert Project. Highway 33 east of Collin Creeks Bridge to west of Coronation Boulevard expect delays to due to construction to improve drainage. Construction barrels and flag people will direct traffic around the work zone. Jackson Mills Road near the Campy Trail reduced to one lane for roadside safety improvements but remains open in both directions. 
Counter Street, Princess to Indian, expect delays until the summer of 2021 while crews construct a new four-lane road and rail overpass. King Street at Beverly expect lane restrictions starting April 12th as a contractor working for utilities Kingston and Kingston Hydro works to replace a maintenance hole. Collingwood to Lower University expect delays over the next few weeks as utilities Kingston crews replace hydro poles in the area. Portsmouth Avenue, Glengarry to Princess, expect delays beginning April 6th as a contractor working on behalf of Q Utilities Kingston installs new sanitary sewer and upgrades water mains. Princess Street, west of Midland, expect a lane closure March 22nd to April 9th to accommodate construction. Wilson Street, Compton to Weller, expect a lane closure from April 6th to 9th to accommodate water main work. Highway 15 at Gore, Expect short delays as pieces of the main span of the bridge arrive over the next few months. The trucks expected to arrive after morning rush hour will turn off of Highway 401 onto Highway 15 and then onto Gore to reach the bridge's job site at the Cataraki River. Along Counter Street from Sir John A. McDonald Boulevard, expect short delays as large trucks carrying gir bridge girders up to 150 feet long arrive over the next few months. Trucks are expected to in the early afternoon and will turn onto Sir John A. McDonald from Highway 401 and then turn east onto Counter Street to get to the bridge site at the Cataraki River. Each truck will have car escorts to guide it. And that's it for your weekly traffic report. For traffic and other news updates, visit cfrc.ca slash news. Have a wonderful rest of your week, folks. Thank you for listening to The Scoop, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples.